Hey everyone, it's uh, In Conversation with the one, the only, Linda Gratton. Uh, who's Linda? Well, if you've never heard of Linda, shame on you. She's the Professor of Management Practice at London Business School. She's designed the Human Resource Strategy and Transformation Companies Program and has led that for over 20 years now. And uh, as I know, it's considered one of the world's leading programs on people and organizations. She's also teaching in the MBA uh, program uh, through the very popular elective, The Future of Work. Linda has uh, uh, founded, sorry, the advisory practice, the HSM Advisory. Now, how about this? She's a fellow of the WEF, the World Economic Forums, chaired the WF Council of Leadership. She's been the co-chair of the Global Future Council on Work, Wages, and Job Creation. And if you've never heard of the Thinkers 50, Linda has been a stalwart, a mainstay on the Thinkers 50 I think pretty much since it started. She's the author of 19 books, including uh, this one, Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organizations and Make Hybrid Work for Everyone. And you know what, Linda? It is such a treasure. It's a joy. You are a treasure and a joy. I can't wait to get into this uh, with you. So thanks very much for doing this today. Here's the first question as we yeah. get into redesigning work. And as we yeah. talked about in the green room beforehand, I'm so glad this is the first chance for you to actually talk about this wonderful new book that's coming out. Um, I'm what I call a recovering chief learning officer. Um, for about 15 of my years, I was at SAP. I was at TELUS. Uh, TELUS being a Canadian telecommunications company, of course. Between 2009 and 2014, uh, the team and I uh, helped shift not just the culture at TELUS, mm -hmm. but we introduced something called flexible work styles. And flexible work styles was rewiring how 30,000 people treated work, of which mm -hmm. 20,000 of them, if you can believe that, shifted to the hybrid work model that you've written so uh, elegantly about in redesigning work, i.e. 20,000 people were able to work from home, you know, 95% of the time, or have that split between 50-50. Here's what I learned over those five years, which you've, um, again, articulated so well in the book. We had to rewire what leaders thought work was. Indeed, we had to rewire what they thought performance and productivity yeah. Uh, was. So what did you learn in your research? And tell us a bit about how that's played such a huge part in the, in the manuscript of redesigning work. Well, thank you so much, Dan. And it's a real pleasure to be joining you and everyone who's listening today. Um, you know, we've been saying for ages that work wasn't working. And Dan, you, you, you played such an important role in helping uh, leaders rethink what that might look like. But to be honest, before the pandemic, I didn't see a great deal of change. You know, some companies were doing things sort of on the outside, but there wasn't a real agreed view that work had to change. And I know the pandemic's been terrible for everyone, right. Dan, but I, one thing I feel is it's given us an enormous uh, moment to change the way that we work. And I think that uh, at the heart of that has to be a way of finding work that's more humane. I, I'm, I'm a psychologist. And so I sort of put, inevitably put people at the center of everything. And, you know, what we can do is to make work as it could be, not as it was invented for factories, but rather as it's invented for knowledge workers and creative people and, and, and so many others. And, and we do that, as I explain in my new book, Redesigning Work, by really focusing, and I, there's two things I think which are really coming out strongly down yeah. on this. First of, first of all, you need to think about 
place, obviously, and all the conversations are about, you know, when do we get back to the office? But you also need to think about time because, mm -hmm. you know, time, place is one axis, but time is another axis of flexibility. So, so that was my first big insight. My second big insight is that, and this is why I call it redesigning work, is this is a design process, which we all need to go through. And, and in the book, I articulate four steps. You know, it's about understanding, it's about modeling, it's about testing, it's about implementation. It's a design process. And if we just jump into saying, okay, this is what work's going to be like for the next decade, then we're going to make the same mistakes we've done in the past. So what I would say, Dan, is shame on us <laughs> if we don't use this astounding moment. You know, as you said, I've been teaching at London Business School for 30 years now, and this is the only time when I can honestly say CEOs are really listening to this debate. Here's what I found in the book. And again, the place versus time matrix. Let's uh, maybe get into that a little bit if you explain that first. But here's the follow up question and I'll come back if I need be. It seemed to me as I went through the book and the model itself uh, that the two by two or the place versus time uh, matrix is almost like an indictment on leadership as if we have been stuck in this anachronistic way of leadership. And here you are saying, if you just sort of bloody well took a look at place versus time, you could see that the work could happen anywhere, anytime. So let's get on with it. Oh, by the way, where's your heart? Where's your humanity and your leadership? You sort of tuck that in almost uh, serendipitously inside of the prose. So tell us a bit about the matrix and if I'm right in my assertion of what you're trying to get at. Well, I think that's such a great way of thinking about it. I mean, what I want to say in the book is, that any conversation about redesigning work has to start with a simple question, which is how do we help people become more productive? Because if it doesn't start with that, then you and I, you know, the, the, the experience and wisdom we've got of organizations, Dan, know that all of this is going to be pulled out in mm. one year or two years. Because right. the CEO faced with the next, you know, share, shareholder uh, activism or whatever will say, okay, right, everybody's got to change. So that has to be the opening question. The opening question has to be what helps people be as productive as they possibly can be. And then I think following from that, you then ask yourself, well, what sort of places are people going to be most productive and what sort of time will they be most productive? Let me give you an example of that. Mm -hmm. Quite a lot of knowledge work requires focus, i.e. blocks of time where you're undisturbed and you're just focusing on something. You can do that either at work or you can do that at home. So, you know, if you think about focus as being a source of productivity, it's sort of place ag agnostic, but it's really important in terms of time. You have got to block time off. Similarly, if you say, uh, cooperation is really important for this role, then we know right now that face-to-face -face cooperation is useful. And that's where the office comes in, because the office is a place where, you know, you, you can cooperate. But, but actually, for many of us, the home is a place where we can focus mm -hmm. and we can also coordinate. And what I mean by that is that... Uh, we've learned one of the big learnings, I think, from the pandemic is just how much use we made of technology. And of course, that's only going to get more. So the home can be a place where you coordinate with others, as you and I are doing uh, on, on this on this link now. Um, so I think there's a much more deep, richer 
sophisticated conversation to be had, Dan, about work. And also I use the word in, you know, I'd use the word intentional design, yes. which is when everyone just comes into the office, frankly, you don't have to design work. They just come in the office, they hang around, they talk to each other, work gets done. Once you've got so much variety, and I think people, the penny is beginning to drop that there's a lot of variety now, and it's going to require some very, very focused, intentional decisions about, you know, trade-offs and, and what's going to help your organization become more productive. I love your use of the word intentionality. Uh, and so as you found in, in, in the playbook and the kind of four-step process, you're, you're, uh, you're pointing out that really the the point of work is changing, but so too the physical nature of the office must change. So tell us a bit about what you've discovered and what you recommend. What, what's going to happen at the office? Does the furniture change? Do the rooms change? Like, Tell us a bit about place now as you see it at the office. Well, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that when you don't have something, you somehow imagine and glamorize it right so you know we are really glamorizing the office at the moment we're saying oh do you remember the office it was a place when we could meet each other and we could talk well luckily there's a whole bunch of researchers who looked at offices before the pandemic and they told us what we did in an office mm. and we know what they did and dan you know we went in because most offices by then were open plan which humans absolutely loathe yeah. they went in, they put their noise counseling <laughs> earphones on and then they worked on their computers so this idea that people were just wandering around was never true it has not been true so as we reimagine place then we have to really confront that reality. The reality is that if you want to have undisturbed work where you work on your own, you could do that at home. Mm. Or as Fujitsu are doing, and I mentioned that in the book, you know, they're, they're building little hubs nearby people's homes so they can go to the hub to just put their head down and get work done. What that means an office is about is it's really about a place of cooperation. And, and, and in the book, I talk about Arup, one of the big design agencies, and they had some really interesting things to say to me about their office. You know, one was we want it to be very open so people can see each other. You know, so, for example, we don't use elevators. We have we have staircases so people are bumping into each other as they walk up the stairs and they can see each other. The other thing they said, Dan, which was really interesting, is they said, you know, proximity is, is, is very valuable. You know, if you and I are standing next to each other, we're more likely to get to know each other well. So why don't we really make that an asset and move people around in groups every couple of months? And so they actually do that. They move people around. So, and the third thing he, they talked about, which I loved, is that they open it up to the community so that the office isn't just a sort of, a, a, you know, a, a sealed container. It's actually part of a neighborhood. And I've talked about neighborhoods in, in a number of my books. Sadly, not 19, only 10. But nevertheless, <laughs> I've talked about, I'm hoping it's never going to be 19. But I have talked about how important neighborhoods are. And, and so that's my imagination of what an office could become. And there's enough architectural practices around at the moment who say, yeah, we, that's what we want. So let's see what, what comes up, Dan, over the next year or two. So in addition to the word intentionality, i.e. of the office, you also use, and you've just done it, by the way, uh, use the word cooperation so well and yeah. so much, uh, both directly and subliminally throughout uh, throughout the book and the four-step processes. Now, here's the, the question, Linda. So I'm I'm a I'm a leader. I'm a CEO. I'm a C-suite. I'm senior exec. Um, 
Do, do I need to also take a look at, you know, banking on the word cooperation there, the culture of my organization? Like, what is it, whether it's my team or the org, do I need to simultaneously think about if, in fact, we are going to shift to this place-time model whereby community, cooperation, neighborhoods, great words that I, I love, uh, like, like you, um, mm-hmm. what, what's got to happen ultimately then with the culture? Hmm. Great question, Dan. And, you know, I see culture very much as an end state. So you might be surprised I haven't used it a great deal in the book. And, and, no. and I haven't used it because, you know, my view is that if you get a lot of the structure of an organization right and its practices and process and, and, its, and its fundamental values and the role modeling of senior executives, then it becomes cooperative or it becomes high performing or it be, you know all of these other cultural aspects so i think the role of the leader and i've you know i think the leader is obviously par- paramountly important to this and i think there's two things that leaders can do right now in terms of getting this right the first is the narrative that they talk you know we humans are very influenced by stories imagining things so you know the great leaders at the moment are sort of giving a sense to the people of this is how we could be you know we could be cooperative we could build our offices in a different way we could work from home in a way that helps you spend time with your kids and be productive and so that's the first thing the second thing which i think is much more difficult is they actually role model it and and you know i can see you know as well as i do that that's often the sticking point and so what we what we're seeing in organizations that are really moving ahead is that is that the leaders are not just talking about these new ways of working they're actually doing them doing it themselves mm-hmm. and they're showing others you know i trust you so, so for example let me give you an example of tata consulting services one of the things that they do which i find sort of fascinating is they say look we recruit uh we recruit people whom we trust So once they're in the business, we believe they're trustworthy. We don't have to keep checking up on that. So we trust people until they are proven to be untrustworthy. I mean, we were you and I were just talking about Drucker earlier, weren't we, Peter Drucker? That's a real Druckerism, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. Yeah, because if you trust people to be trustworthy, if you believe people are trustworthy, then they are. And, And so this is where all this sort of surveillance is being counterproductive, because what you're basically saying is, I I don't trust you. So I think, you know, for me, uh, culture is is the end result of the way you do your practices, processes, leadership, and so on. It's that's an outcome. And so as the the C-suite, as the senior leaders are looking at that outcome by shifting to such a model, where do you see um, the biggest impact having or the change needing to be happening? So is it middle management? Uh, so when we think about uh, the, the, the word trust, does the, does the leader or the senior leader sorry, have to trust middle management first? Do they have to go through some sort of change exercise? Because you really are talking about a fundamental shift. However, because of the pandemic, maybe it's been exacerbated because we've been able to, quote, you know, do this. So tell us a bit about where you think where middle management plays a part in all of this. Well, for me, that's very much the fourth fourth step of the process, which is yeah. how to get things to change. And let me, we've already talked about leaders. And I think, as you say, that's that's a really important aspect of it. But, but two other groups are crucial. One is managers and one is employees. And I'll say something very quickly about both. Yeah. Um, 
I feel that the way we've talked about managers over the last decade has been so unhelpful. You know, we've talked to them, we've, we've spoken about them as the frozen middle. You know, if only, you know, me, the leader, could get right in touch with my employees and keep them out, then everything would be great. And that's, and at the same time, we've asked them to do more and more. You know, we've extended the, the amount of work they do, we've extended the numbers of reporting into them. So it's time to fundamentally change that. And Diana Gerson, whom you may know, actually, Dan, who's, who's, who just stood down as CHRO of IBM, and I have written a piece that's gone into Harvard Business Review. It will be out in March 2022. Yes, that's next month. Um, about managers, because both she and I felt, that, you know, this is this is wrong. And so what we've suggested is that we need now, you know, leaders need to support managers. In some cases, it's by changing their name, bringing them together as a community, offloading some of their work, retraining them, you know, licensing them. We've got a whole range of ideas, which you'll read in the book as well. But we've got to focus on managers. And then thirdly, you know, it was never possible to have a bottom up approach. And I've never as a psychologist been in favor of that. I don't think that one can just simply say to employees, what do you want? Because that's not, you know, the role of a leader is to provide some sort of sense of where the organization is going. But at the same time, it's really difficult to hear the voices of people, apart through, from things like uh, surveys. So what I talk about in the book is how you can use technology to connect you know, tens of thousands of employees together and ask them the question, what is it you want? What are the trade-offs? What are the accountabilities? What are the commitments? And that level of conversation, which we've seen companies like Ericsson have, HSBC have, are just absolutely amazing. So, you, you know, it's about leadership, it's about managers, it's about employees. And to redesign work, we have to think about all three of these. I'm so sorry, Dan, because I know when people, somebody interviewed me earlier without reading the book and they said, well, could you just invite, it was, it wasn't, a, it was, a, it was a, a senior executive. And they said, could you just give us like the two things we've got to do right, oh, right now? <laughs> and, you know, and I understand that. And I understand that's a really important question, but there, that's not the question. And, and I can't answer that because what we've learned and Dan, you know, because you've looked at many different companies as I have is each company is unique. It mm -hmm. has to have its own signature. You know, what works for Goldman Sachs will not work for, for another company. And we, we've already seen that. So, so each executive team has to develop a way of working that helps people be productive, helps to engage them, you know, and gives them a sense that they're in a place that they're valued and that they can make a contribution. I couldn't agree more. And indeed, yesterday I was speaking uh, with a CEO of a $3 billion health insurance firm. And, you know, they've been going through kind of iterations over the past two years of the pandemic in their heads, kind of on paper, what's going to be like post pandemic. And they basically got to this, Linda, they said, eh, you know what, it'll happen. Let's let's let them figure out how organically they want to operate in their groups and not have the two three two model or not have this or that. Let's just see what happens. I thought how refreshing that was. Well, it is refreshing, Dan. But but here's the thing, because we yeah. did so we did see some of that at the beginning of the pandemic. The challenge with just letting everybody work itself out is it you get a lot of unfairness. Mm. So some managers do a great job. So, so this is why my view, and this is what I describe in the book, is you need to do both. You need ah. to let people feel 
um, and actually exercise choice. But at the same time, you need sort of almost guardrails or some right. companies call them red lines or things that say, you know, we have to work together because I, my worry is that if you just let it evolve, then it that will create inequality and unfairness. And so you need the combination. And that's why, you know, it's such an exciting time, isn't it, for us? Because these are very complex questions. Oh, indeed. I mean, and I go back to my tenure as CLO at TELUS. I mean, Here's a $14 billion company of 30 plus thousand people. Our employee engagement scores at the time in circa 2008, 2009, were like 47, 48, 49% uh, through Aon Hewitt. Mm. And what we decided to do was to both change the culture and change the work, the operating, the you know redesigning work model, if you will, at that time and shifted yeah. to essentially what we didn't uh, have the the wherewithal to do at the time, but the place versus time, you know, uh, matrix that you suggest. And we eventually got our employee engagement up to 87% wow. with 21,000 wow. people working wherever, right? So, well, so I, 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 I thought, I wish your book was with us for 10 years ago or so. Oh yeah, it, so do I. But you know, the thing is, Dan, I couldn't have written that book 10 years nah. ago. You know, I, you and I were talking earlier in the green room. And one <laughs> of the things I said is I've been keeping a diary since the beginning it's now just so that you know, it's now volume 19 Love it. um you know i've written a book I, I this has been astounding we have learned so much and people companies have experimented you know one of the things i find really marvelous is ceos are now really interested in work which i mean you and i know that most ceos want to talk first to the cfo and that's and then the you know the people doing the people stuff is way down and now I have CEOs talking to me about hybrid work and what shall I, in fact, just before you and I spoke, a huge, huge organization, hundreds of thousands of people, what should I do? So this is a chance to get it right. I love it. Now, uh, it segues to the last two questions or so, and that is, what surprised you most uh, in the research and maybe during the pandemic that is related to the redesigning work kind of mantra. So what, what are some things that like, whoa, I didn't expect that, or that's a, well, it's a good aberration or what have you? Yeah, some good surprises and some bad surprises. Yeah. So, you know, the good surprises, it was astounding, wasn't it, Dan, how technology held up. Mm. I, I think we've completely taken it for granted now. It, if the pandemic had come 10 years ago, this would not have happened. We couldn't have got people the internet wouldn't have been strong enough the computers weren't you know, this thing would not have worked so uh, I have been amazed at how astounding technology has been the connective technology and how easily we found to use it whatever our age so so that would be a really astounding thing the second thing I find really surprising in a positive way mm -hmm. is how CEOs engaged in the conversation. And you know, it was odd for me because, you know, I've been writing about the future of work for more than 20 years. And, that, and people were saying to me, Linda, aren't you sad now that so many other people are in the field? And I said, I'm absolutely thrilled because the conversation is just widening, deepening, whatever. So those are the two great surprises. But I think for me, you know, one of the, the sort of sadnesses in a way is that I did think it would be a catalyst for change, particularly around inequality, and it hasn't been. So what we need, what we see coming back to the office, for example, is older workers are not going back to work. Right. You see that in the US and, and European data is the same, by the way. And secondly, that 
that mums with small children are not are not going back. <clears throat> If they go back, they're going part time. So it didn't make an effect on inequality. In fact, I think it's had the opposite effect. The other sad thing is I've been going on about what happens in the home for ages. It's one of one of the trends I look at, Dan, is uh, is social trends and what's happening in families, who does what. And what we know is that women often get paid less than men because they take up more of the domestic work at home so during the pandemic I thought great this is a great opportunity not just for women to lean in but men to step up yeah they didn't and I, I to be honest as a mother of sons I feel I feel sad about that actually because I, I really thought that guys would say okay everybody's working from home now I'm going to help out uh, and, and and some did but lots didn't and the data is just the research data is just emerging on that so so that uh, that's been a bit of a disappointment to be honest I, I couldn't agree more and certainly I've read probably much of the same data that you have in the research that I've done and um, you know it does uh, it pains me to to see how society devolved a little bit and and I think we have to uh, be much more visceral in what we have to do differently with that male-female divide as we go into and enter into potentially an endemic world with this issue of place versus time. We, we really must. Okay, last, last question, Linda, um, which uh, it dawned on me as I went through it, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, we, we have been, and I would argue still continue to be in what perhaps you might call the age of distraction. And so what I'm curious is, does place versus time, does, does your work, does the synthesis of your work uh, help assuage or kind of circumvent this age of distraction? Because now do we, do we, we have opportunity to focus more? Is there more intentionality in our face-to-face -face time? You know, we don't have to put signs on the back of our chair in the cubicle to say, don't talk to me, I'm focusing. <laughs> yeah. help, me, help me out and understand how this might mitigate the age of distraction. Well, you know, Dan, that's a, a wonderful observation. And I do think that the book absolutely has solutions to the age of distraction. And here they are. First of all, understand what you do to be productive and work out, you know, for example, people who read reports, people who write reports, people who are, are dealing with as many people are doing knowledge based work. You need to do that on your own and mm -hmm. you need to understand and you cannot be distracted during that time. So use that as a basis for designing work. Now, that means that you have to be very intentional about telling others I'm working on this for three hours. Mm -hmm. But it, but when I looked at the very beginning of the pandemic, I, I, I linked into a friend um, who, who runs a company called Artemis Connection, Christy Johnson, which mm -hmm. is completely virtual. And I said to Christy, you know, Christy, how do you do it? She said, well, we intentionally design blocks of time and we tell people that that's one thing. And the second is really understanding about how to manage boundaries, you know, to, to know when to switch on to work and when to switch off from work. And I think some of those are to do with personal habits. And of course, the, the CEO plays a real role in helping us think, you know, their role modeling affects that. And the second thing is, I think it's a structure of work. Uh, 
we, we have got to have fewer meetings. This is, it is ridiculous what's happening right now. Back-to-back -back meetings. Everyone I speak to says back-to-back <laughs> -back meetings. And I say, that is so unproductive. What are you doing? They say, I don't know. I just keep getting invited. Stop inviting people to meetings. You know, so we have to be much clearer about how is it we humans are highly productive and being distracted is the worst possible thing. Multitasking, even though your teenagers say they can do it, you can't. You cannot multitask. So let's focus. Oh, my gosh. I love it. The You're a gem. The book is a gem. I wish uh, I had written it. It is such a lovely book. Uh, redesigning work, how to transform your organization and make hybrid work for everyone. Linda, thank you so much. Uh, what a what a treat. This, what a treat this was. Best of luck with the book. And I hope to shake your hand again at a, a forum in in Europe or Trucker or the Thinkers 50, whatever it may be. Uh, I really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you, Dan.